0: Welcome back to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, Michael Pagani, joined alongside Portland Winterhawks play-by-play, Nick Merrick. Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thank you again for coming on.
1: Michael, thanks for having me. Always good uh, talking a little shop. And it's been such a busy year for uh, everyone involved. So it's good to have these Zoom connections still working out, huh? It
0: really is. And you're speaking on that busy point there, you know, there's been a lot of postponements. I know in the OHL, they've had a lot. Uh, QMJHL has had some, they've had their season paused actually. Uh, how's it going in the WHL?
1: It's been interesting with the Western League. Uh, there's been a little bit of tiptoeing to try to navigate this this Omicron variant and make sure that the full season could get in. Uh, I, I believe right now, you know, almost the majority of the league has had at least two or three games postponed, if not a few more. Uh, but everyone's committed to still getting the full 68-game schedule in. Uh, I know the league didn't go on a pause, but – there was essentially a, a week pause that ended up being because of the teams that were shut down uh, for team activity, but those games they are playing getting them rescheduled and, and getting this full regular season in. So teams can go on a playoff run. You could push for the Memorial cup and kind of get this uh, get the train back to normal heading into 2022. And then of course the next season.
0: It must feel so relieving having that sort of confidence that the commissioner definitely wants to get that 68-game schedule in with their, you know, the amount of trades that are happening.
1: It is. I mean, obviously, Ron Robinson mentioned too, he's been speaking with the OHL and the QMJHL and the Canadian Hockey League as a whole to make sure that them and local health authorities and the teams are doing the correct things to get the season to happen. I mean, it starts with the individual teams, the players, the coaches, the immediate staff being fully vaccinated, which they've done a terrific job of uh, making sure that happened. And a season could be in place to even start this year. And of course now you have to navigate this interesting time here in the winter months to get through it. Uh, But you're right. There's, there's that calmness of knowing that teams and the leagues and, kind of everyone in, in in part with sponsorships and partnerships and everybody wants to have the season happen. Fans are doing what they need to as well. Um, you know, whether it's a vaccination thing in certain areas or or showcasing negative tests to uh, be able to come out and support their their local uh, WHL organizations, which I think is another step that doesn't often get talked about, but the fans are even doing their part in that regard of, of uh, you know, not their typical schedule but they want to make this happen. Now you're kind of coming into the, the second half of the season here in the league and uh everyone's focusing on you know just getting to that playoffs and and getting to april where you could have a playoff run and hopefully everything goes smooth until then i'm sure there'll be some other speed bumps but like you said michael the fact that you know starting from the top it's being funneled down that they want to make this happen uh it seems like it very much will it's exciting of course i hope we can get the full 68 games in for everybody but Realistically, with some building restrictions and you know different concert venues maybe coming in and occupying, or some basketball events or whatnot, um, you know there might be different issues between provinces and down here in the states of finding the time and availability within buildings. But assuming you know that wasn't an issue, I'm I'm sure the, the goal of having a full 68 is going to go through no problem. And I just want to mention,
0: I guess, bring up the point that kind of build off your you bringing in like fans, right? You mentioned that fans in the stands so important for the game. Uh, TSN and RDS have been, you know, kind of got a new partnership there, uh, broadcasting CHL games. And I'm super excited for it. I know that I watched the uh, Frontenacs and uh, Subway Wolves game. I watched a bit of the uh, Giants game later that night. Uh, you know, I just think that it's very important that, you know, TSN is kind of promoting the junior game. And it's a bit unfortunate that the world juniors did get canceled because it would have been a perfect segue into showcasing more talent at the junior level.
1: Agreed. Well, everyone was going to be excited about world juniors. I mean, if you're a hockey fan, you know, world juniors, you love world juniors. If you're kind of getting into the sport, I feel like world juniors is one of the first things that people kind of point to. Cause they're like, what's this? And who doesn't have nationalistic pride, right? You want to cheer yeah. for, you want to cheer for Canada. You want to cheer for the Americans. You want to cheer for your favorite players in Sweden and Finland. If you're here uh, in North America, like you're following those people because of the teams you support, which kind of connects it all together. And I, I've always loved world juniors. So Uh, to kind of comment on what you said, it it is a shame that obviously they had to uh, make that tough decision to cancel the tournament this year. But uh, I mean, who knows? I guess we, I'm saying cancel, but at the time of us talking, it's, it's still an asterisk. Maybe I heard they were trying to do something possibly in the summer um, to, to see if they could alleviate that, at least get some kind of mini tournament in there. But in, in terms of the TSN coverage, it's going to do phenomenally for the sport. It's going to do great for junior hockey. Uh, I, I got to tune into part of that game as well. I had to work a Winterhawks game that night, but then watched a little bit of a, a recording from it. And, of course, you check out the highlights. And and uh, John did such a great job there with the play-by-play. Uh, and, of course, having Craig Button on, on color commentary, everyone in the hockey world respects him and, and appreciates his coverage and knowledge of the sport and how much he knows about all these prospects and – uh you know really throughout the entire chl so seeing that in a back-to-back doubleheader was a great way to expose it and and having more chl games in general on tsn is going to continue to grow the sport not only in canada but I, i think it'll have a little bit of effect too in the states because here in portland in particular you'll you'll see more video coverage side come out uh maybe a little bit more accessible in the states albeit they won't get the full broadcast um, uh, you know, of watching a TSN coverage here in Portland, Oregon, uh, but you're going to be able to see that exposure through social media channels, and you'll see that through uh, different websites that'll that'll be pulling the content that's available to absorb here uh, in the states. So, I mean, sky's the limit. I love the partnership. I love the agreement, and uh, kind of the vision of what both TSN and the CHL, uh, and of course the the CHL leagues have in mind with it. So. Let's just continue to, to promote these tremendous athletes and young men and organizations and all the good they're doing and what not better platform than TSN to start with.
0: Getting into your story a bit here, how did you end up getting your foot into the sports journalism industry? Because we all know it's such a competitive field.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting story there, Michael. I, I raised North Carolina. So kind of knew early on that, like all of us do in the in the journalism side, you aren't very good at a sport, so you can't necessarily play that sport for a career, uh, but always had a passion for sports, still enjoyed playing it to a, let's say a club level or uh, you know your high school varsity level, uh, but knew it would, it would be the end of the line there. So uh, then it kind of comes to the question of what's next to, to stick in the industry. And communications and journalism were two of the things that came up big for me, uh, of course, you know always love talking sports and and here we are just kind of enjoying an afternoon talking about it so uh that kind of translated to me keeping a focus on college of where to go it was either going to be my my hometown unc and i was going to be a Tar Heel, or what ended up happening was uh, i fell in love with the journalism program at the walter cronkite school arizona state university so made made the jump out west uh, to go do a four-year bachelor's degree there and uh, got involved in the hockey program I thought I wanted to be more of your, your TV sports reporter, or sports anchor, and kind of do some things in like your local stations here in the states of Fox, NBC, ABC, CBS. Um, but then instead kind of got involved with the team and enjoyed doing that PR role with a, with a specific team and um, having more of my communication base and my experience in college through that. And then of course, just kind of coupled that with my love of hockey. So uh, determined I wanted to stick in a sport, not do like a network type of thing. And that's when the hockey email started going out and I tried to find a connection somewhere. And one thing led to the what led to another. And I got a position uh, with the Lone Star Brahmas in the North American Hockey League and uh, was there for four seasons. And now I'm in my fourth season here in Portland. So just, just kind of uh, going through the through the motions of, of working with some junior hockey teams. And I, you know, of course, I fell in love with the college sport through Arizona state, who's now division one level. Uh, but that's kind of the same age of players that are now doing junior hockey. So I've been involved in this junior age rank now for uh, almost 12, 12 years. And I honestly love it to death. I think it's such a great um, you know, extension of, of getting young men to play through the sport. And, and you get to be a part of it from that firsthand perspective in my role right now in the communication side and broadcasting side, and then get to support them when they go on in their careers, whether it's in the sport of hockey or whether or not, you know, they want to become accounters or lawyers or doctors. Like it's crazy to see the stories that come through Portland and the amount of uh, almost like a fraternity of players that there is here. <laughs>
0: I just want to touch on, because you were talking about almost becoming a Tar Heel, then you move out West. Yeah. Uh, a lot of players, you know, it's very hard for them to kind of get accustomed to a new environment, whether you get drafted to Edmonton or you get drafted to Edmonton being from Manitoba, for example. sure. Uh, you know, how, how did you kind of adapt to that change, you know, being from UNC moving all the way out West? Was
1: that kind of a hard adjustment for you to make? you know what it really wasn't but it's kind of all the. I think it's all about the mindset that people go in with like it's it's one of those where if you want to make the moves you're going to do it and you're going to do what's necessary to make those moves happen when you go out west so it's a little different lifestyle um I mean in terms of when I was raised North Carolina it's it's a you know a relatively southern state still um it has its you know geographical differences from Arizona, which are pretty notable. The weather is different. Um, The seasons are different. The sports scene as well is always different. Like North Carolina is a big basketball town because they have UNC and Duke rivalry. So college basketball is King there. Um, Of course the closest professional sport at the time outside of AAA baseball at the Durham Bulls, was the Carolina hurricanes. So that being right down the road, that was my immediate exposure of my family to the sport of hockey. Uh, But then when I, when you moved to Arizona, you just kind of, get enthralled in a different environment. And I, I mean, it's one of those where people say they like to travel and it's kind of one of those where um, my family always did a lot of summer traveling and, and we would go to Minnesota when I was growing up. So I was used to being in different environments um, that it wouldn't phase me as much. And you, I, I kind of adjust into the, those situations. So uh, kind of being able to see how different, you know, Locations, different cities are, are run and they have their own different quirks, which makes it fun. And that's when kind of this Portland situation came from, I don't have ties to Portland. Uh, I was specifically here just because it would kind of be something further my, my career in the sport of hockey. Uh, and I can kind of take that next step in the broadcast side, but in hindsight, my wife now is two and a half hours away from Seattle, which is where she's originally from and her family's based in. Um, so you kind of get to go through it and, and, and see what you like, see what you don't like. And so far, I mean, of, of the places I've gone between North North Carolina and, and living summers in Minnesota, four years, in Arizona, four years in Dallas, Texas area, four years in Portland. I love so many different things about each of those cities. So it's not as much a fear. Um, but part of it too, is maybe that my home life, it's, it's always that connection to home. Uh, my parents no longer living in North Carolina. So it does make things a little bit easier because I don't have my home base yeah. back where I was raised anymore. I'll still go back and visit a little bit but not as frequent as you'd imagine um just because of course it's always kind of where where your parents are where mom and dad are uh so that that in its own right too makes things a little easier to be able to travel and and uh, kind of get accustomed to those different lifestyles
0: what did the arizona state broadcasting course kind of help you like what did they offer in terms of like you know is kind of i guess you could say lessons that you learned
1: to help uh, sure. later in your career Honestly, kind of everything. Um, I think the biggest thing about Arizona State was the fact that they kind of offered me to get into my journalism field right away as a freshman, as opposed to a UNC or other programs that I was looking into. It was more of your generic uh, system where your first two seasons or seasons, see here I'm talking hockey, uh, your first two years, your freshman year and your sophomore year would be kind of catered more towards just your gen ed courses and then you become more major specific for your junior year. But I knew going what I wanted to focus on. So the fact that Cronkite School kind of escalated that and they gave us two journalism classes each semester your freshman year, that was a big enticement for me to get in because I think, okay, I'm passionate about this and they want to help me. So this seems like a good start. Then you get there and you kind of see what experiences you can get into and, and that's where I found the hockey club, uh, where I got to broadcast some games and just do some intermission work and some extra reporting on the side with some video editing stuff that I learned through classes that I didn't have in high school, I didn't have a chance to learn video editing, you know, in high school. Uh, but when I do that as a freshman, as opposed to doing it during a junior, it kind of just helps me and opens my realm up a little bit more, um, which was very beneficial because that's how I found hockey. And that gave me my first kind of foot in the door um, rather than, you know, of course I did like the school radio station too, but you start off as doing, you know, just really generic board op type of roles. And and, and you try to get like an on-air segment down the line when, when you are an upperclassman. So that part's still normal there. But the fact they had more experience is that they didn't care if you were you know, an 18-year-old freshman coming in, or if you were a 21-year-old senior or junior kind of getting ready to jump into the work field, uh, they really put me in a good spot to to launch my career, experiment a little bit, which I really enjoyed, because again, I thought I wanted to go into the whole sports TV side and just focus on your nightly news type of casts, uh, but now when coming in as a freshman to a new place that I had to meet new friends and new people and adjust kind of talking about what we just talked about. Uh, That was kind of, okay, where can I go? Can it be in hockey? Can it be on radio side? Uh, Can it be working for this organization downtown of their communication? So they really open up and and kind of broaden my horizons. And that allowed me to fine tune it into uh, wanting to focus on this career in hockey.
0: Spending four years at Arizona State, there must have been some favorite memories that you had covering the hockey team. There,
1: Yeah, there was plenty. I mean, in terms of the hockey side, I think the biggest one was just working with Greg Powers, who's still their head coach at the Division One level. But uh, he came through the journalism program. So it's, it was very neat. We had a tremendous connection um, with our club. Essentially, it was our club at the time. And we, we built this club from... Uh, I, I, I'm failing on the name here now, but it was something really long winded. Like, let's say it was the Arizona state hockey broadcasting club or Arizona state hockey broadcast organization, something like that. And, and of course, then you get the acronyms of like ASU or something silly and, uh, we had such a great connection with the coach that we'd always have nightly chat or weekly chats, but it was every day on Thursday, we would talk before the weekend games, whether it was an Oklahoma or a central Oklahoma or University of Arizona coming to town. So smaller name schools, because they were part of that ACHA club Uh, but you know we would kind of get our scouting report there and that's where our our communication base would come and he was so open to giving us information and we would always have to interrupt his kids bath time he would be going bath time he would put his kids to bed he would come on the phone to talk to us and we were all huddled in a a, a pretty small office kind of like one I'm in today um, just to be able to you know share some words and who's hot going to the weekend what'd you see at practice of course we get to see a little bit of practice we also have a school workload to do so it's not like we get the free time to, to be there at every single practice to watch it uh, when we're juggling a lot of things so I, I really kind of cherish those moments and then to see it build from that uh kind of two different areas our our arizona state hockey broadcast club grow into like a walter cronkite sports network that actually partnered with pac-12 digital networks to broadcast games So, so we built this to be more than just hockey. Then it was lacrosse. Then it became soccer. Then it became basketball and football. Then it became a talk show. So it it kind of became an all encompassing sports department um, that the the school itself worked on. So I love seeing the growth of that. And then, of course, from the hockey side, you get to talk with Greg Powers every Thursday during his bath time. Well, not his bath time, but his kid's bath time. Uh, you know, and, and just taking the phone calls there and, and hearing some rubber duckies in the background and, and sharing some great laughs. And then uh, Athletic Director Ray Anderson saying, Arizona State's going to become a Division One hockey program. And then who are they bringing? They're bringing Greg Powers. So I love that story, too, from just a tremendous coach who really – you know, made an effort to connect with me and made an effort to connect with so many others. Uh, to, and then to see them succeed now at Division One level has been something that always I'll, I'll take with me going uh, forward in life and, and just kind of that little story. But of course, you have your typical college stories that you love. Um, I really enjoyed my time with, with my roommates and, and they're still tremendous friends of, my, of mine moving forward. And you always have those crazy college stories I'll take with you um, that Arizona State always has a, a soft spot in my heart.
0: From there, you know, as you finish your career with Arizona State, how did you get the call to be the Portland Winterhawks broadcaster?
1: So it was a route through the North American Hockey League. Um, probably like, like a lot of, uh, you know, aspiring journalists or, or broadcasters or marketing people, however you want to go into this field, into the sports field, you kind of get this predicament where, how do I find jobs? Like, how do I find a job with a team? It's hard. Like, you'll see some of the cold openings, but then realistically you realize, well – Nick Merrick's not going to matter. If I don't know who that hiring manager is, like, who am I to them? They don't, they don't care. They'll find anybody or they'll find somebody right down the road who could fill that from whatever local university just, you know, just graduated from. So I pretty much did the typical cold emails to well over a hundred clubs. I I focused mainly on junior side, just kind of knowing that it might be easier to get my foot in the door there. Uh, Also some, some ECHL programs, but it was a few junior teams that ended up reaching out and I had some conversations with and that's what pulled me into Texas it was probably a four-month process of trying to find a, a, a position and all they could really offer me at the time was we do need a broadcaster so you could do that and maybe we'll give you 10 hours during the week um you know but they were very honest and I appreciated that but I'm like okay well if that's going to work with I'm going to do it and I, I built a great connection there with, with the Brahmas with with their front office staff and then they ended up giving me more work and it ended up ultimately for my benefit became a full-time position, but that's what first started off to get me into the league. And then once you're in the league, it's all about, you know, just the having conversations and, and being involved in the sport. And you, you always have an eye and ear out to what's going on in, in the landscape of things. Um, and it was my connection with, with the visiting team in Corpus Christi uh, Brad Flynn, who was the coach at the time. Now he's in the OHL coaching and he made stints in, in the QMJHL and the WHL. So he's been a part of all CHL organizations now. Uh, or or leagues, I should say, not organizations. That'd be a lot. That'd be over sixty organizations. But uh, he's had his hand in all the all the uh, different leagues, and he was the one that his dad at the time was an assistant coach for for Portland, and he had heard news of the Portland broadcaster at the time moving on after the years. So that kind of opened the door to give me a connection base to get contacted with Portland, and again, a position I didn't know that was open at the time, but I kind of got the first chance at a, at a. An interaction in a meeting before the official job did open up. So I kind of got my name heard before, uh, you know, the application process happens. And uh, then once it was open applicants, then I went through the interview process with a few others. And uh, of course, it, you know, I ended up leading to this position where I am now and, and we're speaking where I got the job with the Winterhawks and absolutely loving working for Portland Winterhawks.
0: But let's speak on, you know, just how well the Portland, uh, Portland Winterhawks have been this season. You know, it's been quite a wild season, to say the least, you know, with Edmonton kind of stacking up their roster. They have six world junior players, five from Canada and one from Slovakia. Uh, you, you got Winnipeg, who has uh, Matt Savoie, uh, who's been ripping up the league. Uh, you certainly have Regina, but kind of Regina kind of in the rearview mirror, if you know, if I'm being honest.
1: Yeah, without a doubt, I think it's something interesting with with the league because teams are trying to find out that right window of when you're going to go for a push. And and I've been really spoiled in Portland. This Winterhawks program is in tremendous hands with Mike Johnston and his coaching staff, and it really through the assistant coaches Don Hay, Brian Pellerin, Mike Coffin running right the department. Like they have they have a tremendous view of the hockey landscape, starting from probably the under 14 levels, and of course when you draft them as 15 year olds. And coming in, it was Cody Glass right off the bat, who was the superstar in Portland. Then it became Seth Jarvis. And Seth Jarvis and I essentially started full-time same time uh, four years ago. When he was a 16-year-old, he broke into the league. That was my first year, was during his rookie season. Now, he came up as an affiliate player the year before. uh, But it's interesting because now is the time where I've had – you know, I've been employed with the Portland Winterhawks since these players and everyone on the roster has been in the league. So there's nobody that really outdates me anymore. Um, from a broadcasting side, it's always kind of nice because then you know who's who's around the locker room. There's no extra inside jokes or whatnot that happens. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that I may have missed. Um, but then you you kind of lose a Seth Jarvis, and kudos to him. I absolutely love Seth. Everybody from not only a hockey player, but his family, his personality, um, his actual Seth, like Seth as a human is an incredible person. And no matter what he does in the NHL, he's going to be a successful person in this, in this world. Um, And everyone roots for him. So the fact that he can make it as a 19 year old in Carolina is such an incredible story and, and how well he's doing. And honestly, I wish he got more call to recognition than he's probably getting now. I know he's on the probably the top 10. Some people have him hovering top five, um, I had him on my
0: fantasy team for a while.
1: I know he's doing, he's doing great. Uh, and and just being able to kind of have that connection there. And now Portland's transitioning a little bit where it was a situation you had Seth Jarvis back. I think Mike Johnson making some big time moves and he's oh, maybe yeah. trying to go after those Caden ghoulies that went to Edmonton um, or the Justin sort that the deadline that just got traded to Edmonton or the Luke pro cops. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see kind of how the landscape from Portland's perspective had to shift a little bit after losing Seth Jarvis, I say losing, but of course he he got a promotion to the NHL as a 19 year old. That's hard to do. Uh, But Edmonton set up for a huge run. Winnipeg set up for a huge run. And here's the funny part. I can't really speak on them, uh, Michael, because we haven't seen them in two years with the whole COVID situation. It was us division only last year, this year, it's only Western conference. So it's almost like it's a different league um, from the standpoint of when you're a broadcaster, you don't have to focus as much out East. You know how powerful the East teams are and the East teams are the ones that made the biggest splash in terms of the deadline acquisitions. Um, but it's it's interesting because it's going to be, I, I mean, there's no denying we see who the favorites are. It's probably, it's going to be Edmonton and Winnipeg in the East. If, if one of those two does not win the Eastern Conference and represents the WHO in the finals, something went horribly wrong. Uh, for those programs because they've obviously bought in to go this year uh, then to speak on Regina. I think that's the interesting point because I'm sure if you're their GM and, and trying to navigate the, the Connor Bedard show, your window is this year and next year, you get a two-year window to try to go for it. And obviously they didn't feel comfortable. This was going to be their year. I also don't blame them because I think Connor Bedard is going to be playing for Canada at the Olympics. So you're going to lose him for a month, maybe five weeks Um, that's tough. It's tough when you're going into the playoffs to also lose another key player. Now, albeit you're going to lose them next year for world juniors again, yeah. uh, but that's always kind of a factor for teams. But when you add the Olympic thing as well, I think that maybe made things difficult. Um, Plus you're, you're looking down the road and seeing how Edmonton and Winnipeg stacked up. So the league itself is very interesting. There's some very, very talented teams. And I think the WHL will have a good chance of of uh, contending for Memorial cup this season. Uh, But this is the fun time. This is the time you love it going into late January into February and March after the trade deadline passes of kind of seeing what the teams really are like, because we've seen some big deadline moves before, but they've kind of bitten teams in the butt. So uh, I don't think it's going to be the case for Edmonton, but you know, when when you have so much talent, they're going to have to also kind of shift things and learn how to distribute ice time well and get those, you know, get the, stars the puck when they can. So uh, it's, it's a whole different world in the second half of the season.
0: You mentioned that, you know, Portland, right? It was a US based division in 2020, then uh, only uh, Western Conference teams this year. Uh, yep. Could you speak on, I guess, broadcasting within the bubble? Because that would have
1: been, a, you know, a, definitely a weird scenario. Oh, without a doubt. It was, uh, I, I just heard stories of the bubble from others, because um, they mainly bubbled up in Canada. In yeah. the States, we didn't have to do a bubble scenario. Oh, like okay. Everett, they, they all had their um, their players go live at, at a, a university housing. So it was different than the building system. In Portland, we actually were fortunate enough to be able to have our players still housed with their billet families. So okay. they had a relatively comfortable three months of knowing what they were getting into. Uh, but then you see the stories about teams living out of rinks and and them all having a bond together in Red Deer. Uh, you hear the stories of, of uh, four or five or six teams playing in one, r- under one rink, so they all have to kind of share the same practice time and game time, and they have meals catered into them. And one's at this hotel, one's at that hotel, and uh, they're pretty much then secluded to their rooms. Like, how do you how do you kind of mentally survive this pandemic being in a 400 square foot hotel room? Um, so I didn't have to deal with any of those hardships or or have any of those stories to share, but just from the standpoint of being in the bubble in terms of the team aspect was interesting because I have that role that you're a front office employee, but you're also in, involved in the team when they travel. Mm-hmm. So I had to separate a little bit from the employees in the office on a day-to-day, um, you know, just do a little bit more regulation in terms of the social distancing in here. And then also when you go on the road, I was the only one who'd be involved into the locker room. So I, oh, you know, I was going through all the testing protocols and I forgot what the number was of how many tests there had to be last season, but I know even like in a one week span this year, while it's going on in 2022 um, our, our trainer had to distribute over 250 COVID tests in one week. So it's crazy how many how much testing they had to do and how much funding from the leagues and the teams has to go into this. Uh, but it was wild. Like pretty much, you're getting COVID tested every other day. Uh, I'm sure it was probably around, let's say, what a hundred tests for myself. Um, you know, to, to get through the process of that uh, internal bubble situation, and then you see the same opponents six to eight times in that shortened year. So the rivalries get a little built up. But it was it was very eerie because you're also working a game day in front of a private rink like it's weird and I have a very vocal broadcast so uh, I'm always sitting up there in the broadcast booth like oh lord I'm going to be sitting here and I'm going to be saying something and these players are definitely going to hear it on the bench and sure enough there are a couple times where they're like yeah I think I heard you when you scored there Nick and I'm just like oh boy you know because it's like I know I'm loud but we <laughs> get a couple thousand fans in the arena. uh So, if that, from that side, too, it was very unique because it got to build my relationships one on one with the players, which was great. um But it was very eerie to work a game oh, yeah. day being by yourself. Kind of cool to some regards, but I'd rather just have the fans and have the energy in the arena than have players come back. Yeah, I heard you yelling when we scored. Oh, great.
0: Well, I mean, the fans definitely add some energy to your
1: uh, call there when you, you know, when it's a goal call, right? without a doubt, without a doubt. Well, cause you can kind of feel the emotions of the game yeah. more. Like it, it's hard. It's hard to have an ear on what's going on between the benches. But that being said, when there is no fans, that's one side, you can hear more. You could hear more of those communications of the bench. Even when I had my headset on uh, you'll still pick up on it when you, when you take a breath to talk or a sip of water, you're in a commercial break. Um, you know, you, you can kind of hear an extra words that you probably wouldn't hear if there were seven rows or you know however many rows of fans in front of you. Um but yeah, having the fans back this season was, it was special. Like going in the training camp and seeing the fans there, it, it kind of brought back that sense of normalcy and it, it felt like we were making a step forward. So I, I enjoyed that from the regard of the fans got to see finally what we saw last year, cause it's the same group, but then you get those rookies who now aren't rookies, yeah. but they played 24 games. So they didn't get the full experience of the rookie season. So essentially now is, is their rookie season, even though the league doesn't classify it as so it's just so interesting to see how many things change um, when you have to kind of make these detours to get a season going and you forget some of the things that happen during a normal season that when you get it back, you're thinking, Oh yeah, this is, this is kind of nice to be back back to this more normal setting to add on to that
0: point there. Like I spoke with Shea Van Ulm who plays for Edmonton and he brought up the point that like some of the games this season, it's the first time that he's playing the team because he didn't get to play. He didn't get to play against them in the bubble.
1: Yep. Yep. That's kind of the same way here too. Well, and of course we have a lot of Canadians in the Portland roster, Mm -hmm. um, probably more so than we have in the past. So there's plenty from British Columbia. I think we have about five or six who are based in BC so when we made that trip to BC this year, there's actually a lot of family members who were able to come to the game. So from that regard, you get you get the aspect of the, the parents, the families, and, and the players kind of get closer to home. They get a little bit of a homecoming, or at least in, you know, an hour and a half drive, let's say, to some of these rinks to be able to get friends and family to attend and watch them play. So for, the, for them to go through that for the first time is always an experience. Um, and then kind of an, in addition to that, and it seems like what, what you're talking about is the fact there's fans. They didn't get fans year one. So there's also like, you know, you, you hear the stories and they're like, well, yeah, like when I played for the Saskatoon Blazers, we'd have, I don't know, 80 to 100 fans. And all of a sudden they're coming to the WHL rinks and there's 4,000 plus fans during a pandemic when yeah. teams are used to getting six to 8,000. So, and they're, you know, their their minds kind of blown a little bit. because like, wow, there's 4,000 people here to watch. And then, you know, you're trying to sit there and say, yeah, wait until it's a non pandemic. <laughs> yeah, literally So, uh. That's something where, where they just don't get the knowledge of. Uh, and it kind of happens in those rivalry games in particular. The rivalry games when you really see it, because then that's when the fans get most excited. That's when the players get most excited. And they're like, oh, wow. Like, we didn't have to build as much bench energy. We got to kind of feed off the fan base uh, to kind of help us through, rather than saying, like, hey, let's, let's pick it up. Like, we, we got to get better this next shift, um, at least how they always described it. Now it's more so of like, oh, fans are into it. Like, let's go. Like, this next, we're scoring next shift.
0: What Portland Winterhawk player has really impressed you this
1: season? Ooh, that's a great question, Michael. Um, I think there's a couple different ways I can go with this. In, in terms of a newcomer, I, I love the game defensively of Luca Cagnoni. I think he's going to be a superstar in this league. Um, he's he's a late birth year for, for an 04 class, so he's not draft eligible until 2023, uh, but I think he'll be a top one to, to keep an eye on. And he'll definitely be one of the leaders. Uh, from Portland's perspective, as an undrafted player who's most likely, at least as a trends right now, I'd probably put him as a, maybe a second round NHL pick right now. So I think he's going to be that good uh, from a defensive side in our league uh, and division. Uh, so he's probably one I'd start with. Tyson Kozak as a player who I've always enjoyed his game uh, from a centerman perspective when he came in as a 16 year old. He how do I say that? Like he kind of played second fiddle, to Seth Jarvis, because everyone knew Seth Jarvis. They would yeah. always watch him. But then it was also like, they'd come to a game and they'd see Seth and then they'd point to Tyson and say, who's that guy? Like, well, no, he's yeah. that guy. We got to keep an eye on Tyson. And <laughs> he's a player who just so quietly has developed his game. That's very exciting to watch because I mean, people, people throw out the word 200 foot player. And I know I'm guilty of using it for some, but Tyson Kozak is the 200 foot player. <laughs> He's power play. He's penalty kill. He's banging bodies. He's blocking shots. Like he's pretty much your first line role and your third line role together in one as a centerman in this Portland system. So that's very like, I have not seen a player like that. I know I throw out the term 200 foot player. And of course that it it stinks that I do because it, it, uh, uh, it lessens the point I'm trying to make here. It's, it's an
0: overused term is what you're getting. It at. is. It yeah. 100% is.
1: Because people want to be a 200-foot player. Then you see how when they actually do get a 200-foot player, you're like, oh, that's what they're talking about. It <laughs> yeah. put back in the dictionary. For a, a Winterhawks junior hockey player, it would be him. Um, I think he's one. And then probably my, my third one to round it out would be James Stefan. Uh, seeing his, I can't say hardships, but kind of coming into the league, he was listed by Portland. He signed and came here. I thought he had a good rookie season, but every time we talk to him, I know he's very disappointed about how his 16-year-old season went. He, he thought it'd be more of an easy transition, but you and I know from watching juniors a while, it's not always you're going to go from Bantams to juniors and just have the same point per game pace that you did yeah. there. It, it's a little bit of a learning curve. So he he put in the work and, and he had a what he calls a tough junior, you know a tough rookie season. Then COVID hits. He wants to maximize his games, so he goes to the USHL that was just simply a developmental move for him to allow him to maximize how many games he could play and good on Lincoln good on him for doing that because now he kind of had a breakout season last year and now he comes back to Portland. I think he has five multi-goal games at the time of, of us talking. Um, he got named as a, as a plus one year in his NHL draft year on, on uh, the midterm ranking. So he kind of is getting a little bit more recognition too, from the NHL level. And that guy's got a shot. He has an elite shot. So seeing that progress to of, of him being, what he told me kind of down on himself and down on his game to seeing him as this confident winger, um, you know, playing top line minutes in, in a span of a team that wins the Scotty Monroe championship as league champions to COVID and then not seeing him to coming back. It's like a different human being. So I think those are kind of the three stories that really stand out for me.
0: Well, speaking of James Stefan, it's actually funny because I wrote him down in my next question. Uh, Cross Hannes and James Stefan, both, you know, kind of combined for the Ziegris Milano type goal they earlier did. this season. How shocked were you when that happened?
1: It, it was the best goal I've seen live, hundred percent the best goal I've seen live in person. I, I mean, we've we've all now become accustomed to seeing the Michigan goals. Um, yeah, that it's it's still a, an accomplishment. I love seeing them. I think it's great for the sport. Any way you can get more creative and get more vision out there from just the generic sports fan. Is going to do well um but i've i've seen cross hannis now do two michigan's live so i get spoiled and you see that and you're broadcasting it while he does it it's unbelievable but then when you see him pull this move off and essentially the reason i like it so much is he sees it done by zegris and mulatto and zegris is a player who is i believe just two age brackets above where he'd be at maybe even one and playing together at like world juniors like they cross paths at the usa hockey level but they didn't play together on the same team i don't believe maybe some pickup stuff but not like an actual competitive team for usa uh and then it's something where you see him do it in early december and then within 10 days he repeats it at at the same level but he only had like two games since that goal happened so it's it's so cool to see how you get inspiration from a trevor and sony milano and then you have to say why can't we do that? Yeah, exactly. Two games later, they executed on the road in a game situation the day before the team's going on for a, a holiday break, which everyone calls it the sugar plum game. Cause you're thinking about just going home for family time after getting two months. Uh, so to kind of see that live in the third period, like I was speechless for almost the rest of the third period, my phone was getting texts about what are we going to do about this? Like we, we got to, you know, from a marketing team side, everyone's talking about how do we make this a big deal? How do we get this to the right people? I think it kind of naturally blew up on its own and became its own version of viral that day. Uh, but to see that executed was crazy. I know there was a couple of fans, too, who are always laughing and they're saying, um, uh, oh, well, they just went away with the blatant cross check it, you know, in front of the crease. Yeah, I saw I got, that. Got some room. And It's one of those, like, what do you want? You want to be the ref to call it off? Like, you really want to blow the whistle on that, even if it was? Uh, once you, once you see how that play developed and I'm sure even the referees weren't looking to center ice. Cause how are you thinking this play is going to happen behind the net? They're going to get it. Yeah, front exactly. Of there's two ways. You're going to skate around and you're going to pass it, or you're going to try the Michigan or there's third way. Now you're going to flip it over the crossbar and bat it in.
0: The Winterhawks currently have momentum as they're eight and two or eight and three. I, what, what are they? They're eight and three in their last 10 games. Sorry about that. Uh,
1: you know, will we see kind of a strong second half surge from the Winterhawks? I think so. I really do think so. I think this team I've said it since day one of this year, this is the closest locker room I've seen in Portland in my four years, which isn't speaking much. I know there's been championship teams, so I, I don't have the knowledge basis firsthand of how that compares, but the only other team I've seen compared to it was my team. And when I worked with the Brahmas and how tight that group was, no matter what, and it didn't matter what came their way. That was a very close group. What happened there? They won the championship. It's hard because it's different in the WHL compared to the NAHL. But this group is the closest I've seen together from a friendship and from a bonding atmosphere side where there's no rotten eggs in the locker room. Everyone gets along. Of course, you'll get your you know, you'll get your friend groups that are more segmented, just like it happens in every day, everybody's life, where you're gonna have a friend group where I love these two friends, then I love these three friends next, and that then the you know the bigger group after that. Um, but this is a well-knit group that's playing good hockey. They have the right pieces. They have the depth to definitely make a run, and now they have the goaltending tandem with Gauthier and Genuzzi to be able to kind of see what's going to happen come playoff time. Now, we're still a couple months away from the playoffs, so I know it's still distant down the road, but if the team keeps trending the way they are, I don't think it's going to be a team that wins 8 of 10 every single 10-game stretch. But if you can start winning 6 to 8 really consistently – then all of a sudden, you'll be in the top four, maybe three in the Western Conference. And now you're going to be one of the favorites to maybe come out of the West. So it's going to be very exciting to see how the second half of the season goes. Um, it's a team, though, that without that Seth Jarvis, to kind of go back to an old point we were talking about, the team stood pat the deadline, which I like Mike Johnson doing to the degree of he knows this team and he, he respects the team and he knows and confident the team could do it. Um, But it's also one of those where they want to see the younger guys develop a little bit as well. So it's going to be a learning curve because teams don't have that playoff experience because of COVID. And one thing I noted, I've noted during the year is you have a Jaden DeRoe who's in his 20-year-old season. And he comes in leading the team in playoff experience with like eight games. So it's not much. Like players don't have that playoff experience. And we know from watching it, and players understand it, but they don't know it until they live it that it's a different animal. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter if if you put up 90 points in 60 games, all of a sudden, if you're getting hit harder on the boards, are you going to hold up for, you know, a five game series in seven or eight days, or is that going to be too tough for you? So the team's getting conditioned very well. I think it's going to be one that we, we're kind of seeing glimpses on because they have a bunch of three and threes coming up. This team doesn't get tired. So that's going to help them. And they've always had that next man up mentality. So a very long winded way of saying it should be a very fun second half of the season. They don't have the star power, but they have good depth and they have a conditioned team that's together that could always be scary going into April. The team
0: is currently third in the Western Conference with 125 goals for. Do you think that's kind of the, been the recipe for success this season?
1: Oh, without a doubt. That, that's the Mike Johnson way of hockey. In, in October and even early November, that was not the case. I think the goals for was probably right around two a game. Um, now it's more about four to five a game. So a big difference there when you're able to win games in your offense rather than having to try to win games based on defense. And you can't win defensively. I mean, this is not disrespect to the team, but you can't win defensively when you have five 17-year-olds back there on your decor. They're young. They're still learning the systems. Like that can't be a, you know, you, aren't, you don't have an NHL shutdown player back there that could eat 30 minutes and be like, I'm going to single-handedly help us win this game. So you got you to gotta rely on your offense to score. And that's what's happened. Now all of a sudden the team goes on a winning streak so there's very easy to see there's a reason for that correlation team scores more goals. You're going to win more. Um, and I think that's kind of the trend of where it's going to go because I'm, I'm sure from a visiting coach's perspective, they probably have a hard time identifying our top line. Um, I, I think Portland's got two top lines. and I think we have a really strong third line and then a great fourth line. So really the, the difference is kind of like lines two and three are where Portland's going to make the separation. So, you know, if one night you come in and you think it's Jaden Deroe and, uh, Tyson Kozak's line's the top line, no problem. You're going to put your top line against them. Now, all of a sudden, you're, uh, the team's second line for that night is now Hannes, Stefan, and Claussen. Okay, well, all of them have over 30 points on the season, so they're probably going to have three or four-point games too. So it's kind of hard of whichever way they put direction and the attention to, the other line does well. And then if it flips, it's the exact opposite. If they're going to focus on Cross Hannes' line, now Kozak and Darrow are having great games. Um, so it's kind of driven by that mentality moving forward.
0: As we're closing off this interview here, do you have any advice for aspiring broadcasters?
1: Oh man, I think the biggest thing there is, is you can't open up your connections wide enough. It's so hard to see early. I struggle with it so much going through college where you get, you get kind of shoveled over the head. Make sure you know it's all about who you know. You know, connect with people and you're thinking, okay, what, what does that mean? It could mean just take somebody that you aspire to and ask if you can just go grab a coffee with them and just talk for 10 minutes. Don't take much of their time. Everyone's busy, just like you were busy with the student life as an aspiring broadcaster. Just try to get an email exchange, send a handwritten letter, try to get a connection built for the smallest spark that just says, would love to give you a cup of coffee. If you're free sometime this next week, I'm open blank to blank. Maybe it's you know, Monday through Friday from 8am to noon is great. Just give them a window, work with that. It kind of will help build a connection into the door. And don't set your goals too low. You know, don't have it too narrow. If you if you want to be the play-by-play voice on TSN broadcast, set that. Make that your goal. Make it happen. If you put a chart together, you can you can figure out how to get there um, by simply just kind of getting your foot in the start and then seeing where you need to branch off to. Because you learn when you're in the industry where it goes, and it's hard to describe uh, if you're outside of it right now. Just you have to just get your foot in the door build connections, build trust with people, um, be a good person. Everyone wants to work with a good person. If you're kind of rotten in the office, if, you're, if you aren't if you are fun to work with on broadcast, people aren't gonna wanna hire you down the road for positions. So um, take care of that as well, as much as you can. Um, and, and just ask, You know, don't be afraid to ask questions. I think that's the biggest thing too, because it's, it's so hard to find a starting point. And sometimes it's hard where you don't know what you wanna do in your career yet, but you know you wanna go into the field. That's fine too. Try something, especially if you're still in school, go do something out of your comfort zone once. And if you kind of like it, try it again a second time. If you don't like it after the second time, no problem. Put an X in that, move on to the next thing, um, you know, and just try to go in a different area. I think that was the one thing I tried to do in college was just get get my foot in about six things. But then realistically, you can't stay involved in six things. So figure out in a quick window what's good for you and your schedule of how long do you give it do you give it two meetings do you give it three if you don't like it don't linger somebody on and make them mad because now you aren't now you aren't reliable you know then all of a sudden now your character's in jeopardy so uh, it, I don't know it's a weird way of navigating I think there's so many different ways to, to answer it but the connections are the biggest one um, and then just make sure whatever you do you have fun in like if you're involved in it and, and you're you want to go in that route and you're enjoying it you're in the right spot if you have any hesitations and you think you want to like it no the answer is no. I thought I liked baseball. I like watching baseball but when I work in baseball, two different things. And I was trying to convince myself, this could be good, <laughs> good. No, just cross it off. Just cross it off. You got to move on. Um, but you learn some things about it. Cause then it's like, okay, why am I crossing it off? Is it the sport? Is it the job? Is it the hours? You know, you, you narrow things down. Then all of a sudden it's like, well, I like, I like the sport, didn't like the hours, like the marketing side. Okay. Sports and marketing, boom. Like there's now a little bit more narrowed side. So everyone knows that with going through internships, I mean, as well. So what when you kind of, even the internships, a foot in the door, if you will, cause that'll help narrow down your, your realm of where you want to go, um, you know, on this forever ending timeline of how big your career could be uh, i think that's the biggest advice i'd give and don't feel free to reach out or ask any questions of people or or people you respect in the industry i mean sometimes it'll work and you'll get into them sometimes you know they're going to be busy and they're going to see nick merrick emailing them who's nick merrick they're right who is nick merrick I, you know I'm, I'm just reaching out to you because i idolize you and I, I respect you know john doe of whoever i'm reaching out to but if john Doe's too busy that's okay like I'll, you know, maybe we'll cross paths down the road and I could have that conversation at a different point. Well, I'd like to thank again, Nick Merrick, for joining me on today's podcast. Thank you again, Nick. Michael, you're the best. Appreciate this. Anytime uh, we want to chat, always let me know.